Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. My guest this week is a woman who, to coin a bit of 80s jargon, punched through the glass ceiling for women in TV, creating not just one, but a series of female characters who broke the mould. And not just any old female lead, but older female leads. There would be no Happy Valley or Scott and Bailey if it wasn't for Linda LaPlante's groundbreaking creation, Detective Jane Tennyson, brought to life inimitably by Helen Mirren. And I said, why and how have you come to me? And yeah. he opened a drawer and he pulled out Prime Suspect. And he said, don't you know about this? I said, no, what? He said, everyone is fighting for this script. And he said, it's the best thing I read in years. The BAFTA and Emmy Award-winning screenwriter of Prime Suspect, Widows, and many other hit TV shows, Linda has written 43 best-selling books, including the Young Tennyson series, the latest of which is Unholy Murder, that takes Jane Tennyson back to the 80s as she battles to break through in the macho met as a young police officer. Linda tells me what it was really like to be a woman in TV in the 80s and 90s, and probably noughties too. The humiliation that shaped her, how she learnt not to let things get to her, and why you should always, 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 always read the small print. Thank you so much for coming on The Shift, Linda. It's my pleasure. Absolute pleasure to have you. Jane Tennyson, how 30? 30 years. I know. Does that feel crazy? In a way, it feels kind of odd. But at the same time, because of working on all the novels of the young Jane Tennyson, she's never out of my mind. And we're on to book seven now with Unholy Murder. And I think probably three more, she will be the right age and rank. And that will take her up. In Prime Suspect opened, yeah. I mean, obviously, you've got unfinished business with Jane because you've been exploring her earlier life. But are you tempted to 
bring Jane back, older Jane? I have contemplated it. The only way, I mean, she would be retired now. And so I did kind of think about it. And I decided that if I was going to do it, obviously, you know, Helen would have to agree. But I decided I might put her as a crime writer. Oh, good thinking. That in her retirement, she started to wonder what to do because she was so bored. And a number of officers that I've met and work alongside, I know they all have a lot of police records. Perhaps they shouldn't have them. Yeah. (laughs) And they've got a lot of cases and uh, he will open up an old case. Do you think Helen would do it? I don't know. I mean, she has such a remarkable career and she's always in work that I really don't know. It would have to be under discussion. Oh, but it's Jane Tennyson. Mm. How does it feel to have created one of those characters that's so significant? Truthfully, because the BFI are doing a show on Sunday and they have been showing the prime suspects to a public audience Mm. and then there's a QA. and a I thought I had better have a look at it again. (laughs) No one forgets. All by myself, I sat and I watched it. And in all truth, I think it would stand up today with Mm. very little alteration. And I also felt that there has never been given the right kudos to the director. He was called Chris Manor, and he really did an incredible job. He did my script and was so fascinated that I could take him to incident rooms, introduce him to police officers. And so he worked very, very diligently in getting that reality to the show, which was then obviously led by Helen Mirren because she was the right age. She was already in her 40s. That was radical in itself, though, wasn't it? I mean, not only had you managed to get the TV company to produce a female-led crime series, Mm -hmm. but then they didn't cast some kind of hot 25-year-old. Did you have to fight for Helen? It was very interesting because they hated it. When it came in, the script came in, they hated it. They found her unemotional. They brought up things like, you know, when she's looking at the body of the young murder victim, she is touching her. She was actually checking her wrists for marks Mm. as she'd been tied up. And I said, well, she's a police officer. She's (laughs) And by that age, you will have been privy to looking at an awful lot of cadavers, maybe not leading a murder investigation, but you would have been there on site. The reality was they couldn't come to terms with what she was. It was very frustrating, but they simply said, look, We're not going to go ahead with it. We do have another cop show which is set in Spain and it's called Cops. You know, I just said, fine, what can you do? They paid me to write the script. But in those days, there used to be a thing called Flexipool. So 30 years ago, if any of the main networks had booked a script and paid for it to be written and did not go ahead with it, it went into a pool Every single network script that nobody wanted to do were then up for grabs, cheap, because it had been written and it was in flexipools. So, you know, at that point, somebody said, oh, it's gone into flexipools, so nothing's really all lost with it. I didn't know what flexipool was. No. And I then got a call from a film company, Carnival Films. And when I went in and met the head of the film company, he said, "Uh, I'd like you to write a detective movie. And I said, oh, thank you. (laughs) He said, at the moment, we are doing a film with Liam Neeson called The Key, which is a big thriller. He said, but I'd like you to write a thriller for us, a movie. And I said, 
why and how have you come to me? And yeah. he opened drawer and he pulled out prime suspect and he said, don't you know about this? I said, no, what? He said, everyone is fighting for this script. And he said, it's the best thing I read in years. So he said, that's why I have brought you in. Now, nobody would mentioned this to me at Granada. Nobody had inferred there was a possibility of anyone else bringing it up. And eventually I get the call to say, oh, we've got a bit of good news for you. We've decided to do it. Oh, God. And I said, wow, that's wonderful. Thank you. And, you know, it was very strange because we'd been filming for some considerable time and I opened the stage and there in the forthcoming film section was a movie called Prime Suspects starring Liam Neeson. Oh, and I went to I went to the and I said, "Listen, they've nicked this title. They can't have it." And they said, "Look, that's a movie. We're just TV, just TV." Uh, they wouldn't and, say that now. And I said, "Well, no, I'm sorry. I mean, I know what the film was. It was called The Key, and they've taken my title, and it was dismissed." But I mean, I said, I, I can't dismiss it. What do I do? And they said, well, there's nothing you can do. You don't own the title. So I wrote a very personal letter saying, it is my title, and I'm asking you as a gentleman not to use it. And they didn't. And it's like, it was like, I, I don't know you could just say what made me into such, um, could you describe it as aggressive, I suppose so? No, you're just standing your ground. Yeah. In those days, you know, where I got that instinct from, being an actress for so many years, uh, and you come against um, an awful lot of rejection as an actress, and you just learn to take it. But I never, as an actress, spent so much time on something, so diligent, so working with the police and getting everything right. And um, if I had any time with the wonderful detective I used, Jackie Moulton, if at any time when she was reading the script, she said, no, this doesn't work, you'd never do this, then I'd say, what do I do? Tell me what I do. And she would consistently guide and say, go go directly. Don't mess about. If you want to know where somebody was on March the 15th, find out where they were. And she taught me about interrogation. So the reality was having so many guide me and work alongside me was terribly important. And I did not want to in any way let them down. You know, I always have worked in the same way with people. You know, if I need to know something, I'll go and find out somebody that's done it can tell me. And I keep on saying to everyone it's respect respect mm. the time that people give you if you disrespect it by going well thank you very much i'll just take a bit of dramatic license here i won't you know you know we see constantly now on tv a detective drama and they bring in a body and they go have we got the toxicology report in oh yes it's just come in whereas i know it takes three perhaps even five six weeks for a toxicology report to come in mm. and the delay and the frustrations Forensic science is, you know, unbelievable now what we can do. And the big learning curve for me also is working on a young Jane Tennyson when there was no DNA. I think Prime Suspect was the first time DNA was ever used, the actual trace. Yeah. We've got the DNA. Was that one of the things that was attractive for you about writing Young Jane, was to go back to a time before all those answers were scientific? In a way, but also... 
I was quite shocked to be asked what the young Jane Tennyson was like, and I had no notion, because I'd worked with the real McCoy throughout the entire writing process of Brown Suspect. I'd never actually considered what that officer was like when she was young. But what it made for me to work on was how did that character get to a position of such control? Unmarried, her life was her work. And so to go back to when she's 22 years of age and see the mistakes she makes, see her ambition, see her failures, which eventually create that very formidable woman who, when told you're stepping into dead men's shoes, she said, how else do I get this job? And so that has been a really wonderful exercise for me. And at the same time, a terrific learning curve, you know, know, having to run to a phone box to make a phone call. What an emergency. He's like, and nowadays, the mobile phone, you see, the mobile phone, what equipment that is. Yeah, it's changed everything, hasn't it? They can ping off when somebody says, no, I wasn't near Hampstead on the 15th. His mobile phone is he's pinged off Oxford Street, he's pinged off, there he is in Hampstead, from his mobile phone. And people think they can delete things off their mobile and they can't. So it means that in a way, you have to create a really strong group of characters that you're interested in and not make them kind of wallpaper. There's what I call wallpaper characters. There's an oh, awful so lot of many. characters. Yeah. And then um, if you have to wait three weeks for a toxicology report, what can you put in that will make that energy level lift? And often, you know, you see these dips in dramas and it's the same in reality, is a dip in a crime novel. You know, you're reading, it's writing crime novels is a very fascinating exercise because you know what the end is. Now, you have to be able to make somebody so fascinated they keep turning a page and turning a page. And they also, the puzzle is that you are actually engineering somebody to think, I know who did it. Oh, no, wrong. Yes, wrong. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's a fascinating process to go through to, the, to formulate the puzzle. And um, often when I'm reading crime, which I have to read a lot, because the worst mm. thing is if you're writing a novel and then you see and there are the crime novels come out and it's exactly the same plot, you think... Oh, well, no. really that again. Crime. And we have terrific, a lot of female crime writers now, a lot go towards the psychological side. But um, over and over again, it is a fashion. So I'm reading a crime novel and enjoying it. And then I think, here they're going, they're blowing it, they're failing. Because three quarters of the way through, you feel the writer going, oh, got to finish it. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh, got to bring in the killer, bring and end it. And you think, I've definitely oh, done that. Oh, I get so angry. You know, that you're suddenly introduced to a character that you have no notion who it is. And then the book is end. Yeah. You're no fan of the ludicrous twist, are you? No, none at all. None at all. Also, you know, with crime novels, uh, there is a, an end. You know, when it says the end. Yeah. In real crime, there is no end. Uh, there's no end to your daughter, your son, your 
husband being murdered, there's no end. You mm-hmm. you live with it. And, you know, I, I find over and over again the tragedy when I'm interviewing, you know, families of crime victims. Some of the things they say are so emotional. You know, one mother said, I am in pain every day and I know I could go to therapy and lose the pain. But I feel if I lose the pain, my daughter's gone forever. And that is, then sometimes you see someone who's interviewed and they have a quietness to them. That And one mother said when they eventually found my daughter's body, I knew she had already gone, her soul had gone. So whatever had happened to that body, she had all, she was already free. So there's so many different emotions that come. And that is, you know, with a novel, you got them, put them away, it's finished. And that's why I do deal so much in detail with victims because they're – and the understanding right now is that this man is now on parole after serving a sentence for murdering, raping two young girls. And within a very short time. There's such a tendency, isn't there, in crime fiction? I mean, it's getting a bit better, but to almost hero the serial killer. Yes, I hate it. It struck me when I was watching the first series of Prime Suspect. I watched it when it came out, and I probably haven't watched it since. And there's so many things that struck me. but And like you say, it absolutely stands the test of time. It's shocking in some ways, the way that I want to say Helen, Jane, is treated, but actually not shocking in other ways. But one of the things that I wondered if they would do now or that maybe jars now is you didn't shy away from the kind of corpses. Hmm. There are several Hmm. female corpses and the camera does not linger, but it dwells on them for a while longer than it would now. I think the opposite. I think now they dwell much, much longer. In fact, I was looking at Silent Witness Mm. the other night and I mean she was digging around in a cadaver for ages to bring out um a heart monitor she's digging around in yeah. there for a long time but you see when you take any cop show that's on and you look at there is a DCI who looks about 24 yes yeah, yeah. she couldn't be that rank and it's over and over again I just when I get you know, slightly irritated. I mean, Sally Wainwright yes. brought that lovely series and she was wonderful. Happy Valley. Happy yeah. Valley was wonderful. But there you had a woman that actually was totally acceptable as a high-ranking police officer. Do you uh, think Happy Valley would have existed if not for Prime Suspect? Because you yeah. laid the path, didn't you? For Yeah, well, I think Sally Wainwright is a very, very good writer. She'd have come up with that. There's a, a lot of things that I look at and, you know, turn off. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, people say, well, what do you watch on TV? And now we have a plethora of real crime and documentaries. So I'm mostly focusing on the documentaries. And again, a fascination for me is you are seeing sometimes a crime that had been committed in 80s, 90s, very early, you know, 20s. Look at the police officers, their memories, yeah. how emotional they are about it over and over again. Uh you see that it doesn't go away from them. And that's the one thing that I found, to me, 
very moving how often the emotion of one of the officers involved in a crime that I was writing, just you could see the emotion come up inside them and then they kind of try to dismiss it. We can't spoiler, but in an unholy murder, that happens, doesn't it, exactly? One of the officers yeah. has a case that won't leave him. Yes, he won't, can't leave it alone. And I don't think I ever met one officer who was involved in a child murder who has ever been able to lose that pain. And strangely enough, in Trial and Retribution, a series I did, I did do a child murder and um, I found the emotional impact on me, on the crew, on the actors, extraordinary. For the child, we used triplets and they thought it was a game. I was talking to a mother of a victim with a child murder and her husband said the wait was terrible, waiting. Could they find her? Where had she gone? They didn't know where she was. And his wife was looking out of the window, and they were in a high-rise council state, and she saw the female police officer get out of the car. It came slowly up towards the flat, and they had officers around, but this was a female in a patrol car moving towards them. And she got out of the patrol car, and she put her hat on. Oh. And he knew they were coming up. And when she walked in, she took her hat off and put it under her arm. And that's when they knew it was over. And he said his wife gave one howl that was pure animal. And so when Helen was getting ready for the scene, I said to her, you're going to have one take. And I want one take where you do the howl. That's all. We didn't say anything to anybody. I said, try it. Just go for a howl. And it was absolutely so chilling. Mm. Really, really chilling. She was such an astonishingly good actress. And that's been a great fortune for me in all my shows. You know, I've been able to pick incredible actors. Also, the thing is that you have written and made happen incredible female roles. Mm. And for older women. Mm. And that was so... I mean, obviously you'd had widows before Prime Suspect, but it was so rare. And it still is rare, actually, as you said. I truthfully doubt now that I could get widows on at any of the TV companies because there were four unknowns. Mm. Nobody had ever seen them before. But I was very fortunate to have, as a mentor, um, Verity Lambert. And again, casting was extraordinary. And uh, I think... Anne Mitchell. Yeah, the Dolly. Dolly Rawlins character. She came in for the interview with the director and she didn't look like Dolly Rawlins at all. She was slightly, well, she just didn't look like Dolly Rawlins. (laughs) And she said, this is my part. I've waited all my life for this part. You can't give any, the strength of her. And after she'd left, I said to the director, what do you think? He said, she frightened me. And I said, she's Dolly Rollins. She's, you've got her, yeah. And again, because of knowing a woman like Dolly Rollins, and I interviewed her, and she used to run a market store. She was always in this bobble hat, mittens and boots. And I went up to her because I'd been told that her husband was away for murder. And she was very tough. You know, she's going, the tomatoes, lovely, you won't get them anywhere else, darling. They had that gravel voice. And when I went up to her and I said, I, I wonder if I could, have a few moments of your time, I'm a writer. And she was very abusive. <laughs> and she continued to be abusive for quite a long time. 
And eventually, you know, I tried another time and another time. And she said, uh, come and have tea with me, darling. When she opened the door, she was wearing a beautiful suit. Her hair was permed, immaculate makeup. And she saw my reaction. She said, yeah, you don't know me, do you? And I went in. And uh, the reason I've told this is because in her own private life, she was immaculate. So when we're doing the costume designs and discussing them, the costume designer said, oh, right, criminal's wife. Let's have a little sort of Velcro or something like that, you know, cheap. I said, oh, no, Jaeger. Yeah. And uh, cashmere. And you could see this costume designer going, cashmere? Oh, right, I'll put that down. It's it's the difference between knowing and putting it on the screen and not just making it up. Um, And every single one of those girls I found and talked to. And there was one time, he was quite a heavy villain, and uh, he had been involved in a possible uh, security wagon. (laughs) Okay. Anyway. (laughs) Very very helpful to me, very helpful. And so when I was in one of the meetings with the producer and exec producer and the director, I said, would you like to meet someone that um, was very close to the security robbery? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, darling, bring him in. That would be wonderful. (laughs) Can't wait to meet him. And he was a very elegant man, and he had a fur collar on his coat, leather coat. And he came in, and they became completely silent at a very big boardroom table. They were all grouped together, and he and I were on the other side. And they just reacted in complete panic. They didn't know what to ask him, what to say to him. He was quite thuggish. But he then said, would you like me to help you? And I think it was the director who said, yes. And he opened his coat and delved into his pocket. They all reacted with a... (gasps) (laughs) They thought he might be going for a gun. What he came out with were dinky toys. And he laid them out on the table and he said, "Okay, this is how... This is where your security wagon is. This is where your banker is. This is where... And he gave them the entire robbery. And it was just... And then he put his toys away... (laughs) And they said, oh, thank you very much for coming in. And it's you, you get the information you need in, oh, this is why I can never understand when people are doing a prison series, why don't they go to the prison and listen to them? It's very different, the sounds. And over and over again, the information I've been given literally is, I mean, I'm a sponge because I never take a tape recorder. I never make notes in front of them because mm. they make them withdraw. Yeah, stops them talking, yeah. yeah. So I have memory. I don't forget anything. I've got this awful elephant's memory and I can come back and virtually type out whatever I need to know. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you started working like this, it was quite rare, given that you haven't been a journalist, it was quite rare for writers to work like this, wasn't it? And really rare for a woman to work like this. Was this instinctive for you just to go and ask people about their lives? I suppose in many ways, when I wrote Widows, I was a working actress. I'd never written anything. And um, I submitted a treatment, which was just a page long. And I used my married name, not my acting name. And when I went in, I mean, Verity Lambert couldn't believe it. I mean, I'd been in out. I'd been in mind. Mm-hmm. Always playing a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> not in Rent-A-Ghost. Not in Rent-A-Ghost, <laughs> no. I just squeezed <laughs> myself away. But she said, I can't believe this is you. I mean, well, look, we want this. We like this idea for women. Do you think you'll be able to write an episode? And she said, if it's not any good, would you mind if I brought in another writer? And I said, no. OK. She said, well, we're going to commission episode one. All right. I said, right. I didn't even know what a commission was. You know, I went home in a kind of panic really, and thought, well, now what do I do? And I don't know why on most movie sets, and usually connected to the props department, is a bit of a villain. They've always got a little lamp, you know, you want that little lamp, I can get you one of them. They've always (laughs) got these guys that are slightly, you know, and I met a genius. I mean, he literally said, what do you want, a killer, burglar? What do you want? I know I'm all. And um, learn the lesson, you know, don't react, overreact. If somebody is telling you the most horrific story, you just go, really, that's, oh. And I got so much material, even down to the fact that I was quite shocked that interviewing prostitutes and going down around where they have their patches around King's Cross uh, and approaching the girls. And I eventually said, look, I'll pay you. I just need an hour of your time. Now, here was an actress that had played a prostitute in virtually every single crime show you can imagine because I had red hair from Liverpool and was short. Yeah. So the yeah. only, you know... Not stereotypes yeah. at all. I mean, I could go in for an interview and said, I've just done Hedda Gabler. And they go, right, well, we didn't see it. Oh, would you like to read this? And it was a Liverpool prostitute. So it was, you know, used to that. And I just found the depth that I as an actress had missed. All the stories were different. And it was a big learning curve. And even to the fact that when I wrote a leading role for a black actress. I never put that she was a black actress. I put her name as Bella O'Reilly. And Verity Lambert said to me, Bella O'Reilly, that's an odd name. I can't quite see her face. I said, well, she's from Tiger Bay. And she went, ah, God. And that's where we found the beautiful Ava Motley. And it was like over and over again, go to source, go to source, often in very dangerous positions too. And I had to learn to take protection too. You get so much fodder. Earlier you referred to people describing you as aggressive and you're not, you're strong. Do you come from a a family of forceful women, of women who know their minds or? No. Your mum's not, wasn't? No, nothing. My mother was an obsessive sports fan of everything, particularly football. Grown up with it in Liverpool. And I remember one evening she said to me, 
this prime suspect, uh, did you write it? And I said, yes, mother. Well, you know, it's going to clash with the football. <laughs> know your place, Linda. <laughs> None of my family, only my sister, who I began to use as my casting director because she would search and find the actors that I wanted. And I was always going for somebody that had never been on the screen. Because of my experience as an actress, one of the biggest learning curves I ever did was I was asked by a director to do Calamity Jane at Sheffield at the big Crucible Theatre. And it was a musical. Now, I'd done cabaret, but I wouldn't call myself a very good singer. And I said to him, look, I don't know if I'm going to be able to cope with all these songs. And he said... I haven't got you for the singing. I've got you for the acting. Up went the memo to everybody in the cast that we were not going into rehearsals for the show until the musical director had worked with us. And he was a horrid little American man. He said, I don't care what you're doing with it. All I'm interested in are voices. So we had a pianist playing the scales, and he said, when I point to you, I want you to hit those scales. When I point to you to a second time, I want you to sing a couple of lyrics or something. And I was dying in the front row. The voices coming back from the chorus were fantastic. And there was a girl, she was a lovely girl, who he said, beautiful voice. Give me, give me the first bars of... Once I had a secret love and she belted it out and I still hadn't had the baton pointed at me. Then eventually the baton came to the small shrinking redhead in the front row and I just croaked out. <laughs> and he said, no voice. And then at the end, when everybody had had the baton pointed, he looked at this girl and he said, you have to be my calamity. And she said, no, I'm not, actually. And then he looked round the room and he said, who's Calamity Jane? And I put my hand up and he went, dear God, you don't have a voice. Rude man. The worst humiliation I've ever known. I was terrified to sing. Every time I opened my mouth, this other girl would sing for me. And one night I was thinking, I think I'm going to walk. And there was a young guy in the chorus and he came into the rehearsal room and he said, you have to stop this. He said, um, you are Calamity Jane. No one else's. You are. And you're not singing. You're letting your understudy take over every song. He said, I don't know if you can sing. He said, I can play a few bars and you've got to learn how to listen to the beat of the music. He said, don't be frightened by it. And so he worked with me for about, I don't know, an hour. And he said, tomorrow you have to let everyone in this room know you are the leading role. No one else, you. When this girl steps up to sing your song, you have to say, no, I want to sing it. He said, if you don't do that, you should leave. So the following day, I mean, I hadn't eaten. I was so shaking. And it got to once I had a secret love. And he said, right, let's go again with this. And she stood up and I said, no, excuse me, I have to sing it. And he said, oh, really? You have to sing it. I think it's been proved here at every rehearsal. You have no voice. And I said, I know, but I will sing it in my way. So everyone in the room was poised. I have never known fear like it. I was shaking from the soles of my feet. And he said, so how are you going to sing this famous song. And I said, I want to sing it very quietly and bring it right down for emotion. And I turned to the pianist and I said, can you not bang out the notes? Play it softly. It wasn't good, <laughs> but it wasn't 
bad. He never said it was okay. It was the encouragement of every member of that cast. When we went in to actually physically rehearse, then I was on safe ground. You know, I knew what I was doing. And it was a monstrous hit, the show. And it was the biggest joy I've ever known on stage. Extraordinary. And to go through the humiliation and to fight through it, to get that performance out, was, I think, probably the biggest learning curve of my life. And I think that, truthfully has mirrored probably everything that I've done, the fearlessness. Because, you know, even producing the discrimination when you're a producer and being the only woman in an edit suite. Mm. One time we were in the edit suite, all men, all working the machines, and I was in front. And they often used to refer, she's in, hear that, she's in. Oh, she's here. Mm. Yeah. And I'd sit there. And in this particular, you see it on a big screen, and then you have, them playing the music and you say yes that's fine bring the music down no piano in that leave that and it was a scene where somebody had to walk past a church and a bell rang so I said can you stop a minute I said the bell is in the wrong place and you could feel the animosity uh where do you want the bell Linda so I said the bell comes exactly as he passes the moment of the chapel right so they played it again i said no you're wrong you'll be too far come back a bit with it so and you could feel the anger in the room getting worse yeah. they then were very well she's just said the bell is a second off did you get that second off right try it again try it again no she's done it it was i was oh. then they got the bell in the right place and i said bell is in the right place but you're using the wrong bell <laughs> this was like I dropped a bomb in the room as this huge man behind the desk said, what bell are you referring to? I said, I sent you a tape of a bell and a bell that I like the sound of. And a very young engineer suddenly said, oh, I think I've got that. I think I've got that. I said, put that bell on in that position. And it was completely different sound of this bell. It was like a very low, low sound. And I said, okay, that's it. That's fine. Thank you. Let's go on. Nobody said you were right. Nobody mm. said that was well done. Nothing. Of course not. No. Go on. But if I had, you know, thrown a tantrum, screamed or shouted, but they had no actual comeback. And that's what I discovered as a producer, you know, and casting the right people and working with the directors was uh, very great patience and never to actually really humiliate anybody. It's that constant thing, though, isn't it, of, you know, that women get, particularly in very male environments like that, like you're difficult, you're stroppy, you're obsessive, you're, you know. Yeah, here she comes, watch yeah, uh oh, issues. Has that in, has it improved as you've got older and like been reeling out a string of hits? Is it? No, no, no. I mean, I don't want to go into depth of it, but you know, I went through gross humiliation when they wanted to make the young Tennyson. Young actress came in, um, blonde, very chirpy, came in, she hadn't done anything. She told a funny story about meeting somebody in a coffee bar before she came in. And then she read and she left. And I said, that girl has to be cast. She's absolutely stunning. Oh, well, I don't think so. No, it doesn't do anything for me. I said, no, I think she's wonderful. She's very talented. Yes, but she only just had that. I said, cast her. They didn't cast her. And her name was Florence Pugh. Oh, good Lord. Oh, and that was who you wanted for Young Tennyson? Yeah. 
Oh, idiots. I don't think she was right for the lead role, but, I mean, it went in every direction there. You know, I would bring in actors and every single one was turned down. And I'd never, ever had to deal with these pompous people. And I thought it, it still hasn't ended. But this time I walked because I think you do get to a point where you say... um, I'm really not prepared to get myself too distressed. And strangely enough, I met a wonderful old producer and he said to me, I hear you've had a very bad time. So I said, yeah, a bit of one, you know, it's hard. And he said, just remember something. Don't waste your time on anger. Don't waste your time on, don't let it get you. The best revenge is success. And I said, well, thank you very much for that. And about two days later, Steve McQueen rang and said he wanted to make the movie of Widows. And so you go, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> but it's true. Perfect. You know, to be able to not let things get you down. And I think eventually now I'm old enough, I still it, do get very emotional. Now. Did it take a long time to learn that, to be as actual, actually self-contained as you have always yeah. seemed? Yeah, a long time. Very long time. And also, you know, I did have a very good mentor, Verity Lambert. Yeah, amazing. He taught me how to edit. And I often say to people, look at a headline. If you want to know how to hit and pitch a script, look at a headline. Yeah. Look at the journalistic, you know, how fast they get to the point that makes you want to read an article. And over and over again, you know, when I'm giving lectures and talking to students and things, I say that. I mean, you're kind of almost, well, you are, you're a brand, you're Linda LaPlante. Mm. Has that been a blessing or a curse? Oh, it's a blessing. Absolute blessing. I mean, I couldn't think of it as a curse. What I always say is that I never really asked for it. It just sort of came about. Suddenly, a Linda LaPlante drama. I mean, I'd never asked for that. It's very good and it's very helpful. But I still get most of my enjoyment from literary events where I meet and sign and talk to people and have these Q&As. And invariably, over and over and over again, somebody comes out and asks me something like, what happened to Harry Rawlins, the child? And, you know, that's back from Widow, somebody said that. And I yeah. said, I don't know. And it's over and over again, the feedback. And I think if that stops, because during the pandemic, you know, it's been unable to go to events and unable to talk to people that like Linda LaPlante and have a good laugh. Yeah. You're missing part of a circle, aren't yeah. you, of the work? Yeah, but the Zoom has helped a lot to be able to do a lot of interviews via Zoom, like with you. But it is missing because invariably it fills you actually with a lot of joy to think these people go out and they buy my book and then they bring it for me to sign. One of the things I want to ask you is like when I was watching Prime Suspect 1 and just thinking about Jane Tennyson and there's a real sense, isn't there, and that certainly it was like this when I was kind of growing up into adulthood in the 80s as well, that womanhood was a bit of a liability that we were kind of taught to downplay it. You know, if you want to get on, just be like them. And then you're judged for not being feminine enough. Have you felt that in your career? Probably not because of an actress. You know, you're a bit of an alien anyway. And I went to the Royal Academy by far too young. I mean, I had no idea about life at all. And there I was. I mean, nor did my parents. My father, I said, I want to go to a place called Rada. He said, what is it, cafe? <laughs> I said, no, it's a drama school. Oh, well, you know, I'd never been from Liverpool on a train to Euston Station, got off, got to taxi, never been in a taxi before. I'd never been in a theatre. I'd never seen a show. <laughs> 
<laughs> my parents thought the Brownwick's Whitehall Theatre, that was what the world was about. You know, Christmas we'd watch Whitehall Farce. And so for me to want to be an actress was because I had the luck of the gods at my school. I had a drama teacher that came in. She was actually supposed to be literature and took over drama and fed me books and fed and fed and fed me books and talked to me all the time. And nobody had ever done that. Um, no interest at all in the theatre or films. Um, you were dyslexic, weren't you? Yes, very so, badly so. So reading was not a straightforward thing for you? Well, again, I was fortunate because I had a tutor at the school. When they noticed that I was holding the book upside down, there might be a bit <laughs> And uh, she said, you're not reading at all, are you? And I said, well, not really. And she said, but um, can you read me this? And she held out a page of, I think it was Jane Eyre. And I said, no, I can't actually. And she said, why can't you read it? I said, well, it's a bit blurred. And do you need glasses? No, I don't think so. And eventually she sussed her. All the words were jumbled up. And she made an alphabet, big alphabet for me, um, with A, ape, apple. Ah. And as soon as phonetically I began yeah. to learn the alphabet, it became easier. But I didn't really read well until I had a typewriter. Because I think I never actually had that humiliation about it, you know, that was something wrong with you. It never worried me at all. I was so naive. Um, and I can remember talking to John Hurt, who was in my group at RADA, and Ian McShane, an actor. And there was an actress that I was particularly, or a student she was really, who I thought was fantastic. And her name was Morag. And she had a short-cut boyish haircut. And she smoked Giton cigarettes and had a leather handbag. Oh, she sounds very cool. Oh, I thought she was unbelievable. And one day with um, Giton between her lips, she said, have you got a gynecologist? And I said, no, I haven't. Have you? She said, well, of course I have. I just wondered if I've got the best guy now in the world. I don't know. So at lunch with John Hurt and with Emmett Shane, I said to him, what's a gynecologist? <laughs> and Ian McShane said, oh, I know exactly what that is. I said, you know when you've got a map and they have little flags where you have to go he said, you know, geologists do that. I said, well, why has Mora got one? And they said, well, I don't know. So they were as naive as I was. Yes, you thought you were asking about geologists. I just got one more question I want to ask you about Jane Tennyson before I go yeah. to the questions always asked. Um, you stopped working on the TV, didn't you, at the end yeah. of Series 3? The way Jane ended up with as the kind of the woman who had given up everything for her career. Mm. How did you feel about that? Well... One, I would never have made her an alcoholic. Two, I got to a point in my life as a writer where I didn't like to be told what I could write. I mean, that they wanted more of her domestic life than police life. And so I just said, I think it's time for me to move on. And I did. I'm not in any way being detrimental about the writers that took over because they were all exceptionally good. It's just I didn't want to be told what to write. And that was the main reason. I just like to keep on something new. If they'd said, yes, let's go into new areas, terrific. Not domestic life again. You know, <laughs> is she going to get married? That was a terrific position. You know, and you create this strong, powerful woman. You want to make her into an alcoholic? She would have been a commander. That's where she was going. Yeah. The first female commander. I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask. 
What's your emotional age? About 28. Why 28? Because I, I, I'm still doing insane things. I'm not grown up. My heart is of a very old woman, but really my emotional age is 28. Because I'm a happy little soul, you see. <laughs> and I hate it when I'm not happy. You're 78. And how many books do you write a year? Two. Two. Hoping to do a new TV series as well. And your podcast. Podcast, yes, which is so entertaining for me. Can you imagine ever taking your foot off the pedal? No, no, I can't. Because I don't live in a world where, you know, I watch programmes like How the Rich Live in awe. You know, and then I read that an actress in Harry Potter who's like 14 has just made five million. And you think, oh, I never made that money. I was just going to ask you about money. Have you always been good with money? Terrible. Ridiculous. My advice for anyone If they're going to be a writer, whatever they're going to do, always have a lawyer. I had no lawyer. I signed away. I don't own Prime Suspect. I signed away. I had no proper agent, no lawyer. So you have to look very carefully at any contract ever put before you. And always do not be afraid to get advice, even if it's medical. It's very hard when you're suddenly told, oh, no, no, you don't own Dolly Rawlins. Ooh, is that cat? Yeah, he's obviously decided he um, has been ignored for long enough. This is a bit of a side issue, but I was listening to an interview with Michaela Cole, you know, who wrote I May Destroy You. There was a big fuss because she turned down a million pounds from Netflix for I May Destroy You. But for exactly the reason you're saying, because she read the small print, which I wouldn't have done either, and discovered that she would no longer have owned her characters or her words or any of it. And also go back, you know, in time for things that I was signing. There were no audio books. I literally lost everything to the extent that when you want to use a character from your own book, and your own TV series. No, you can't. We don't, you don't own it. I've gone off on one now and I really must go back. But how did that work with young Tennyson? Because they agreed to do it. So they let you take they her. agreed to do it, yeah. So you were allowed to write it, but you had to get their permission. To... Yes, and then they rewrote it and uh, cast it in the way that they did. It's like uh, over and over again. You think by now at my age, I would have learned a lesson, but I haven't. But I, I now encourage everybody I know, if any form of a contract, be it buying a house, being it, you know, whatever, a car, check the contract, check your insurance, check it, check it, check it. You have to get over being upset. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think you will? I don't know. I hope so. I mean, books have obviously played a massive part in your life. Is there one book that you would recommend? It's kind of a crazy book. A book that really is very powerful for me was uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Wow. Why was that? Um, I've been pretty well obsessed by American Indians for a very, very long time. The very first thing I wrote as a stage play was Billy the Kid. And I went over there and met remarkable Native American Indians. The power of the book and the realisation of how little you know about that part of history. Wonderful book. Who's an older woman who has inspired you, who inspires you? I think Vanessa Redgrave is a very much inspirational artist actress and she was wonderful because she worked in a series of mine called Bella Mafia Mm. and you wouldn't really think to cast Vanessa Redgrave as as a Masioso mama (laughs) and she was astonishing very kind and considerate woman and such a superb actress I I really really adore her and um, the other one is Betty Davis (laughs) (laughs) 
I love watching old interviews with her where she's sitting there, you know, with a cigarette out of her mouth and she goes, I never want that. But she was also very, very forward thinking woman, you know, who fought all her life for her roles and fought to be cast in the parts that she wanted to do. The studios fired her. You know, she's very famous for putting an advert in. Experienced actress looking for work. In her 30s, wasn't she, when she did that? Yeah, and was still working in her, you know, was before she died. She was such a game woman. She was something else. Do you think there are more roles for older women in TV now or...? Not really. Not 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 worth much. They are fearful of it. Unless that's a caricature of suffering from Alzheimer's. or Yeah, unless they're like the joke character or that. Yeah. And as I said earlier, I doubt I could get widows commissioned now because I want four unknown actors. Every time you see a show, the person in it was either a detective last week or played in a hospital somewhere or other. And, you know, they actually have credits seen in EastEnders on a drama. Yeah. I don't want to see the same people. The same woman who is always playing the barmaid, the same person is always playing the tart or the common one. It's like casting. It's appallingly lazy, which is why I always use my sister. I'd say to her, I want a 20-year-old, six-foot-five-inch, red-haired, overweight young man. She'd find them and bring them. You know, I, I gave the start to so many young actors' careers. And you do take quite a risk when you're putting into a starring role an actor that's never been in front of the camera. And it's the same with directors. One of the most incredible directors is a lady called Ashling Walsh. Brilliant director. You know, she's quite extraordinary. So talented. And I met her at her, the very start of her career. What's your superpower? I can think of loads. <laughs> you think that I've got? Yeah, loads. If I had superpower, it would to give people joy. That's nice. Not of anything, really. Joy is something else, to actually have joy in your life. Have you got joy in your life? All the time, yeah. It's everywhere. My middle name is Joy. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, Linda, how many fucks do you give? Quite a lot. Quite a lot. Yes, quite a lot. It's that I'm constantly aware of the generosity of people around, like the vet taking my 14-year-old dog and her saying he's very poorly. And the generosity of her care. Oh, Linda, thank you so much. It's been such a joy to talk to you. You've given me joy this morning. Thank you very much. I've loved it. I really love talking to you. And I hope we meet in face-to-face sometime. In real life. Yes, that would be very nice. Yeah, be lovely. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. <laughs>